Hi there, Paula Eamon here with a heart full of love for you and a heart's desire to encourage you to endure this short life with joy and hope, by the grace of God, for the glory of God. Merry almost Christmas! It's that time of year when we spend a lot of time buying thoughtful things, cooking special treats, making memories, and spending time with our loved ones. We work hard. We make lots of sacrifices, all to demonstrate how much we love the people we are working hard and sacrificing for. Whether we realize it or not, this is a reflection of Jesus. Philippians 2, 6-8 says that though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus prepared and executed his plan to completely lay aside his glorious position in heaven to come to this earth and live a life of perfect servanthood for the purpose of becoming the perfect sacrifice to save you from your sin. Not only that, he rose from the grave and lives now to intervene with God on your behalf. I can think of no greater gift than that. What a savior. Our witness today is one of the greatest gift givers I have ever heard of. His acts of faith carried with him a testimony that spread throughout the whole world. Chances are highly likely that you have heard of him. With that being said, let's dive into episode 10, Joy to the World. Our witness didn't start out with a good testimony though. Crash. A flower pot toppled over onto the sidewalk beneath George Mueller as he stretched his foot out to reach the ground. George was climbing out the back window of the inn where he had been staying, and when he heard the crash, he froze. After he was satisfied no one had heard him, he lowered one foot softly onto the cobbled pavement, then the other. Sixteen-year-old George pulled his tall, lanky body up to its full height and looked around. Good, he muttered to himself under his breath. I'm safe. Now to get out of here. A moment later, George realized he'd spoken too soon. Police officers appeared at either end of the street and began running towards him. George swung around, desperately looking for some way to escape, but there was none. Before he knew it, the strong hands of a policeman had grabbed his arm and were dragging him roughly along the cobblestone street in the direction of the jail. An hour later, George was waiting for his name to be called. The backless wooden bench he sat on was hard and uncomfortable, and the chains around his slender wrists and ankles bit at his flesh. As he waited, George thought about how shocked his father would be to see him in shackles. Then again, his father probably wouldn't be any more shocked than George was right then. George had done dishonest things many times before, but this was the first time he'd been caught. That is, the first time he'd been caught by the police. When he was 10 years old, he'd been caught by his father, and it turned out to be a painful and humiliating experience. His father, Johann Mueller, was a tax collector for the Prussian government, and he often left large sums of money in the house. Mr. Mueller often complained that small amounts of this money were missing, but George, like his younger brother, passionately declared he knew nothing about it. One day, George was called into his father's office, where his father had laid a trap for him. Mr. Mueller had counted out a number of coins and left them on the corner of his desk. When George arrived at the office, his father pretended he needed to go into another room. Alone in the office, George saw the pile of coins on his father's desk and thought of all the wonderful things he could do with the money. 
It seems such a shame to put all of the coins into the official black leather pouch his father used for collecting tax money and hand the money over to some government official. So George crept up to the desk and quietly lifted three coins from the top of the pile. Who would miss them? George quickly dropped the coins inside his right sock. When Johann Mueller returned to the office, much to George's dismay, he looked straight at the pile of coins. How strange, he said in a low, constrained voice George had come to fear. I thought there were more coins there than that. Let me count them. George could feel his cheeks becoming hot and flushed. His heart began to race. The cold coins pressed against his ankle inside his sock. Empty your pockets, said Mr. Mueller evenly, looking his son in the eye. But Papa, George began, and then thought better of it. Obediently, he emptied his pockets onto the desk. There were a quill nib, three glass marbles, and a foot-long piece of string. George turned his pockets inside out so that his father could see that they were empty. Now take off your shirt. George was horrified. How far would his father go before he believed his oldest son? And your pants. George began to fret. Things were not looking good. If his father found the coins in his sock, George would be beaten. And from previous experience, George knew that a boy without his pants on made an especially good target. Now your socks, continued his father in a determined voice. George inched them off his feet, first the left and then the right, being careful to gather the coins in such a way that they wouldn't clink together. Hand them over, demanded his father. George's heart raced even faster. His face felt like it was on fire now. George lowered his eyes as he gave the socks to his father. A second later, his father exploded. My son, a common thief? How dare you disgrace the name of Mueller? Come here now. He reached for the cane that stood propped in the corner of his office. Crack, crack, crack. The caning seemed to go on forever. The pain was excruciating. Eventually, George felt his legs begin to buckle under him. Just as his father's temper subsided and the punishment came to an end. Don't ever steal again, do you hear? Said Johann Mueller, shaking his son's shoulders to emphasize each word. Y yes, stuttered George. Now get out of my sight, roared his father, pointing at the door. George gathered his clothes and half walked, half crawled to the door, not even stopping to dress. Right then, he didn't care who saw him. His bottom was throbbing too much. He made his way up to the second floor bedroom, where he locked the door behind him. Safe inside, he collapsed onto the bed and began to sob his heart out. As long as I live, I'll never do that again, he promised himself between sobs, at the same time running his fingers over the welts on his legs. George wasn't promising himself he wouldn't steal again, no. He loved the thrill and adventure of stealing too much for that, not to mention its rewards. What George Mueller promised himself was that he would never get caught again. Stealing was exciting, but getting caught was painful and humiliating. Now, six years later, he had allowed himself to get caught again. How could he have been so stupid? He asked himself the question over and over as he sat on the hard wooden bench in the police station. You! a police officer said, pointing at George. Come here and hurry up about it. Yes, sir, George replied, getting to his feet as best he could with the chains wrapped around him. 
As he shuffled over to the desk, he held his head up high and tried to look like an obedient young man who had been wrongly accused. Name? asked the police officer. Mueller, sir. George Mueller. George Mueller was born in Kropenstedt, Prussia on September 27, 1805. At an early age, this oldest child of Johann Mueller proved to be quite the little thief. His father sent him to the Cathedral Classical School when he was 12. He spent five years there studying Latin, French, and the German classics, and math. George found his teachers very easy to fool. Starting at age 12, he'd sneak out at night to go drink beer at parties and do other things he shouldn't be doing. Two years before he graduated, his mother died. George was too indifferent to even care. He was caught up with his friends. After getting caught by the police and being put in jail for staying in fancy hotels and not paying for them right after his high school graduation, his father paid his bail and brought him home. He then proceeded to cane George more severely than ever. George was unable to walk properly for days. His father eventually told him that he had planned for him to attend Halle University. George was very excited. Halle was exactly where he wanted to go. But there was a catch. His father had hired a tutor to basically monitor his every move. George had to figure out a way to weasel out of this. He hatched a plan to go to a pre-university school called Nordhausen instead. Because of George's high intelligence, Nordhausen accepted him right away. After much stressful deliberation as to how he was going to break the news to his father, he did just that. His father was furious, but decided that George was old enough to make his own decisions. Had George's intense punishments matured him enough to be an honest student at Nordhausen? Listen to another incident to make your decision. George Mueller loved living in Nordhausen, but he did not have much spare time. He had promised himself he would study hard, and that's what he did. Most days he rose at four in the morning and did schoolwork all day until ten at night, when he fell into bed exhausted. That was most of the time. Occasionally, though, he took a night off, and that's when he started to get into trouble. It was the gambling and partying again, two activities that cost a lot of money. His father provided him with a small allowance, but George was able to spend it ten times faster than he received it. By the middle of the first year, George was desperate for money. He owed money to the tavern owner, the haberdasher with whom he played cards, and several of his friends. He had to come up with a plan to quickly get more money. Just then, the allowance from his father arrived and gave him a wonderful idea which he put into immediate action. George made a big fuss over the money he had just received, making sure that many people in the school knew it had arrived in the mail. Then he sneaked into his dormitory room and hid the money in the false bottom of his trunk. Next, he took a hammer and smashed the lock on the trunk as well as the one on his guitar case. Then he grabbed his coat and went for a walk. Throughout the walk, he practiced what he would say, and by the time he got back to school, he had everything rehearsed perfectly. He strolled in through the front door, commenting on the pleasant weather to some of the other students as he took his coat off. He then walked into his room, looked at the broken lock on his trunk, and yelled. Young men came running to see what had happened. My money, George yelled, enjoying himself immensely. My money's gone. Someone's broken into my trunk and stolen it. He looked at the shocked faces of his friends. What am I going to do now, he wailed. 
Don't worry, George. We'll work something out, said one friend. Yes, it will be all right, said another friend, patting George kindly on the shoulder. I wonder who would do such a thing, asked a third friend, but any attempt to answer the question was lost in a wave of sympathy. George smiled to himself. The plan was going better than he'd hoped. Over the next several days, George's friends took up a collection for him, and when they presented it to him, it added up to more than the amount he had actually lost. The people he owed money to were also kind and extended the length of their loans. By the time the plan had run its course, George had more than twice as much money as his father had sent him, and he didn't have to pay off his creditors right away. George congratulated himself on outsmarting everyone and he didn't have the slightest tinge of regret about what he had done. There was nothing to regret. It was all a game. In the next two years that George spent at school in Nordhausen, no one ever found out what he'd done, or any of the other dishonest things he had done. He had covered his tracks well. When it was almost time for George to be done at Nordhausen, Johann Mueller visited him to let him know that he still wanted his son to attend Halle University. So he told George that he was prepared to pay for it. He also told him that there was no need for a tutor this time. He planned for George to become a Lutheran pastor because it was a very respected position and it paid very well. The Lutheran Church was the official state church of Prussia, which is now, for the most part, modern Germany. George was thrilled. He loved the idea of being known as a person of high standing. Goodness knows what tricks he could play on an entire congregation of kind, gullible people. At the beginning of the school year, the provost mentioned that any student enrolled in divinity school and wishing to be placed into a good, well-paying church had to maintain good grades and good conduct. George knew he had plenty of school years left to work on that. He became the life of the party. He was very well known for his gambling and drinking skills. He was asked often to tell the story about getting arrested. His story became more embellished every time he told it. Despite all of this partying, George did have moments of depression knowing that he really needed to do something with his life. But what? Well, one night, while he was at his favorite bar with his favorite people, he noticed someone familiar. His name was Beta. He and George had attended Cathedral Classical School together. Beta decided he wanted to live a little. He had heard that George was the guy to help him do just that. George showed Beta the ropes, which, apart from all the typical party activities, also included a trip to Switzerland. They had a blast! Eventually, though, Beta returned to his original interests of Bible study and prayer meetings. He invited George to come with him. Almost more to give Beta a hard time than anything, George agreed to go. He immediately regretted his decision. The night came for Bible study and prayer meeting. George entered the home of Herr Wagner, a nervous wreck. He felt majorly out of place. Songs were sung, and he was thankful that he actually knew some of them, but then something happened that he had never witnessed before. A man named Herr Kaiser knelt down beside his chair and led everyone in prayer. Not only was George shocked that he was kneeling down to pray, but he was also shocked that this man was praying out loud in front of everyone in the room. Herr Kaiser then went on to read an entire chapter from the Bible. The entire group of people listened to every word. Some people even nodded their heads while they listened. Herr Kaiser then read a sermon, but it was nothing like George had ever heard the few times he had been to church. Herr Kaiser spoke as if every word was important. 
When he stopped reading, George looked down at his watch and realized that an hour and a half had passed. He couldn't believe it. After another hymn was sung, Herr Wagner prayed. Dear Heavenly Father, he began, we ask you to forgive us for all our unbelief and to strengthen us to do your will, trying in all things to honor you and the work of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. George was shocked again. Herr Wagner's prayer sounded as if he was talking to someone in the room. Later, when Beta asked George what he thought about the evening, George said that he had enjoyed it more than anything he had ever experienced in his life, even more than their trip to Switzerland. Beta invited George to come again, and come again he did. Before the week was over, George Mueller was kneeling beside his bed asking God to forgive him of his sins so that he could become a true Christian. George's friends noticed a remarkable change in him. He wasn't a party animal anymore. He quit drinking, lying, gambling, telling exaggerated stories. In place of all those things, he started reading the Bible all the time and talking to people about God and religion. And he was always going off to what his friends called strange meetings where people read sermons when it wasn't even Sunday. After six weeks of attending these meetings, George came to a conclusion that would shape the rest of his life. He decided that he would become a missionary because there were so many people who had not heard about the gospel. He was going to find them and tell them. After hearing a missionary named Herman Ball, who was raised by a wealthy family but chose to live among the Warsaw Jews who lived in the ghetto, George knew immediately what he wanted to do. He wanted to transfer to Ball's missionary training school. He knew that he would have to tell his dad about his decision, and George hoped that his changed behavior would convince his father. It did not. His dad was furious. He thought George had gone crazy. George told him about all of the changes he had made and that his grades were higher than they had ever been. He also told his dad that being a missionary will honor God as much as being a Lutheran pastor would. His dad said, Don't talk to me about honor. His dad then forced him to think through all of his disrespectful behavior and asked him if it obeyed the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, especially in regards to the way he handled his mom's funeral. George could not defend his past actions. His father then said that this would humiliate him with his friends. Finally, he told George that he would disown him if he chose to be a missionary. His father then broke into tears and begged George not to do this. He demanded George to get out of his sight. Over the next two days, George tried to convince his father. It didn't work. On the morning he was due back at Halle, after thinking about it a lot, he came to a conclusion. He told his father that he would not take any more of his money since he could not guarantee that he would use the money in a way that would honor him. He would go back to Halle and finish his degree, but would only go down the path God wanted him to. His father said, so be it. Now get out of my sight. On the stagecoach drive back to Halle, George felt relieved that the confrontation was over. He was also curious how it would all work out now that he had only the Lord to provide for him. Through many circumstances that were all bathed in prayer, George ended up in London, England, his hunger for missions stronger than ever. Due to a life-threatening sickness, George's health became precarious at times. 
His sickness came back after two months of being in London. The doctor told him that he would have to travel to the seaside and stay there in order to get out of the bad London air. As soon as possible, George traveled to the southern part of England for its sea air. Little did he know that this would change the course of his life. There he met a Scotsman University student named Henry Crake, who was his same age. He was a tutor to the children of Anthony Groves, a missionary who inspired George even though they had never met. Anthony Groves had become involved with a group of Christians who were very influential men. This group of men came to the conclusion that the Bible was true and that they should follow it exactly. This led Mr. Groves to give 10% of his income to the poor, then a quarter, then all of it except a small amount to cover the day-to-day -day expenses of his family. Ultimately, he decided to sell everything he had and become a missionary. Other men in the group did similar things. George really wanted to meet them. He ended up only staying at the seaside for 10 days because he was anxious to get back to his studies in London. While he was there, he took opportunities to preach on street quarters, sharing the gospel to the Jews. As other people walked by, his desire grew for all of them to hear the gospel. In fact, this desire was so strong that he actually quit his studies to pursue this wholeheartedly. George was now a free man, a foreigner with nowhere to go, no missionary society to back him, no job, and only a five-pound note in his pocket. He could not have been happier. As a side note, this reminds me of Brechko, the 20th century teenager who left everything to minister to natives in South America. You can listen to his story in episode three. Three months after George stepped away from his studies, Ebenezer Chapel asked him to be their pastor. George told the congregation that he would accept the position if they would agree to letting him leave whenever the Lord led him. There were also many other churches in the area that asked George to preach at their weekly Bible studies and prayer meetings. One place he really enjoyed visiting was Northern Hay House in Exeter, because he enjoyed talking to Miss Mary Groves about the Bible and about mission work. Mary was the sister of the inspiring missionary Anthony Groves. On October 7, 1830, George and Mary were married. Through all of these phases, George proved to be a game-changer type of leader. He believed that his life should be characterized as fully dependent upon the Lord for provision. He instructed his wife to sell all of her extra things so that they would be free to go wherever the Lord led them, whenever the Lord led them. He also really pushed the envelope by stopping the practice of pew-renting in churches. Pew-renting was just as it sounds. People had to rent pews. So the wealthy people would rent the good seats and leave the bad seats for the poor people to rent. George viewed this practice as a direct contradiction to what James teaches in James chapter 2. Verses 1 through 4 say, My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, Suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there, or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Despite George wanting to operate biblically, there was a catch. 
George's salary came from the money collected from pew renting. So stopping this practice would greatly affect his income. He told Mary. She was nervous about it, but they both agreed that this was the step of faith they needed to take. The first year of this proved to be very difficult. One night they sat down to dinner with nothing on their plates. George gave a prayer of thanks anyway. A woman from another town knocked on their door, holding an entire ham. Another time a woman came to the door with an entire loaf of bread. She felt badly thinking of the Mueller's going hungry. Before they had the chance to ask who she was and where she was from, the woman disappeared. By the grace of God and despite the radical change George initiated, the church grew to nearly three times the size it was when George became its pastor. Things were going well, and Mary was expecting their first child. Despite all the wonderful positives, George believed it was time for them to seek out a different ministry. At the request of his friend Henry Craik, and after much prayerful consideration, George believed that his new ministry should be to the people of Bristol, a smoky and filthy city to the north of where he and Mary were currently living. Bristol was a bustling port city that was full of crime, beggars, and small dirty children. The Lord seemed to be leading George and Henry to a church congregation at Gideon Chapel. He also led them to another church called Bethesda Chapel. The two of them became the co-pastors of both. They made it clear that they would live by faith and would not allow pew renting. Both congregations agreed wholeheartedly. At the beginning of June that same year, a cholera epidemic broke out on Bristol. The funeral bells tolled nearly nonstop. Cholera was very deadly. It only took 12 hours to kill someone and put him or her in a coffin, if a coffin could be found. It spread throughout large cities because of the lack of trees and the incredibly poor system of waste management. George and Henry were called upon constantly to pray for the sick. All through July and August, bodies piled up on the sidewalks and lay there rotting because there were so many bodies to take care of. Often, the cart driver would die, and no one would want to replace him because the work was so deadly. Despite the dangers of gathering as large crowds, the church folks continued to meet together to pray for the sick and to pray for the non-sick to stay well. The work was exhausting. People walking down the road would grab George's arm and ask him to pray with them. Many women were left widowed, and many children were left hungry due to the death of their fathers. Of course, Mary worried about her husband. He was constantly being exposed to cholera. But he reminded her that someone had to minister to these people. She doubted that God was concerned about her, because if she lost George, it would be very difficult for her and their unborn child. But she knew that for George to deny people who needed God would be to deny who she married. Mary had their baby on September 16, 1832. Despite all of the cholera, Lydia was a healthy baby girl. By the time she was a month old, the cholera had run its course. Gideon Chapel held a Thanksgiving service praising the Lord that only one member out of 200 had died from cholera. Very shortly after this, a letter for George arrived from Baghdad. It contained 200 pounds and a request for George, his family, and Henry Craig to come as missionaries. It was very appealing to George. Was this the exotic mission field experience he had always hoped for? 
He and Henry talked it over during lunch that day. By the end of lunch, they had convinced themselves that this was a good idea. Listen to what happened on his way home from lunch. George had promised to visit a member of the congregation, a cobbler who lived about two miles away in the poorest part of Bristol. It had rained the night before. As he made his way there, George had to jump over muddy puddles and every carriage that went by sprayed water up at him. George had just passed the bakery on Newfoundland Street when a little girl came up to him. She was no more than five years old and she was piggybacking a toddler, a small boy with a runny nose and wearing only a torn pair of trousers. Please, mister, the little girl said. Could you spare us a shilling? Me ma's gone with the cholera and me dad went to the mines and didn't come back. George stopped and crouched beside the little girl. What's your name, dear? He asked, thinking of his own daughter tucked in her warm crib. Emily, she replied, and I can spell it too. Me ma taught me. Her eyes shone with delight from her dirt-streaked face. Can you now? smiled George. Well, I'll tell you what, you spell it correctly and you will have earned your shilling. E-M-I-L-Y, she said triumphantly as she stuck out her grubby hand. George laughed. Perfect, he said, reaching into his pocket. Here's your shilling, and God bless you, Emily. As Emily hitched her brother higher up her back and picked her way through the crowd, George felt strangely saddened. He had seen little girls and boys like Emily every day of the six months he'd lived in Bristol, but none of them had affected him like this. Where was Emily going? Did she have anywhere to sleep at night? Was a kind adult watching over her, or was she at the mercy of some evil person? What would happen to her brother if she got sick, or where would she go for help if he became ill? These questions haunted George Mueller, and as he walked along, he wondered why he had not seen it before. He didn't need to go to the mission field in Baghdad, or anywhere else for that matter. He was standing in the middle of a mission field. Surely there could be no more needy people in all the world than little children like Emily and her brother. Baghdad might sound foreign and exciting with its colorful bazaars, camels, and pipe music, but there was also work to be done in dirty, overcrowded Bristol. George did not know how to go about it or what a lone person with no regular income could do, but he knew one thing. With God's help, he would do something to help the poor homeless children of Bristol. Yes, he said to himself aloud as he quickened his pace, God has given me a mission field right here, and I will live and die in it. So what did that determination to live and die on the mission field look like for George Mueller? Well, before I get into that, I want to remind you of another verse in the book of James. James 1.27 says, Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for the orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. What do orphans and widows have in common? They both have incredible needs and a limited ability to give back anything to the one who helped them. When you help them, you are giving in such a selfless way that your love for Christ or your pure religion is on full display. It's easy to give to those who can promote your reputation. In fact, it's downright desirable. 
But what about that person who might get your clothes dirty? Or what about that person who looks or acts in such a way that people may look down on you for helping them? Someone who has pure religion could care less. They are anchored in who Christ is and how much he loves them. Believer, do you see the needy people around you? Are you willing to help them? George did. He was very impacted by little orphan Emily and her orphan toddler brother. He was moved with incredible compassion, so much so that it changed the entire course of his life. He got to work immediately. First, it started with the breakfast club that he ran right out of his own house. Orphans were invited to come in every morning to wash up, eat breakfast, and listen to him tell a Bible story. Eventually, there were up to 40 children and a few adults that came. George knew that something more had to be done. After much prayer, which was the prerequisite to everything George did, he believed the Lord was leading him to start the Scriptural Knowledge Institution for Home and Abroad. It would be an organization run by Christian men like himself. It would have three purposes, day schools, Sunday schools, and adult schools for the poor. It would provide Bibles for the poor and help missionaries with financial gifts. The institution would all be a faith-based ministry, meaning it would be run by donation only. Those involved also vowed never to go in debt. Shortly after this idea was presented to about a hundred people, George's son Elijah was born. Eventually, the institution was started. God never ceased to amaze George by how he provided for everything. George kept meticulous records of every donation, large and small, always being mindful to give glory to Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. Less than a year later, baby Elijah died of influenza. The Muellers were devastated. To add difficulty to tragedy, George's health problems returned. The Muellers traveled south to the Isle of Wight for rest and recovery. While they were there, George read a lot of newspaper articles that described English poorhouses. They were a devastating result of the English government's lost desire to help its struggling citizens. The conditions of the poorhouses were absolutely deplorable. Grueling work days of up to 14 hours for men, women, and children. Lice and flea-infested bunks. Families were separated all day into their own age and gender-related categories. They got two meals a day, but they had to be eaten in total silence. The death rate was high because diseases thrived in the horrid living conditions. Suicides were high because hope was completely gone. Again, George was moved with compassion. He knew he had to do something. He prayed, Somehow let me be a light to those around me and help me to find a way to reach the orphans before it's too late. Two weeks before Christmas, George said these words to the congregation at Gideon's Chapel. They would shape the rest of his life. God has told me to start an orphanage. The congregation gasped as he laid out his plan. No collections. No asking for money. No payment required for the children who were taken in. Complete and utter dependence on God to supply all the needs of the orphans. These four steps in George's plan would be the model he would follow from then on. He died at age 92, having outlived his son, his first wife Mary, his daughter, and his second wife Susanna. Listen to the scene after his peaceful death.
By nine o'clock, the whole of Bristol was in an uproar. George Mueller, the beloved father to 10,000 orphans, was dead. Bells all over the city tolled and hundreds of people flocked to the orphanage to pay their respects. The following Monday, the biggest funeral service in the history of Bristol took place. All of the shops and businesses in the city were closed and thousands of people lined the streets to catch a glimpse of the funeral procession as it wound its way from number three orphan house to Bethesda Chapel, where the funeral service would be held. As the procession passed Bristol Cathedral, the bells tolled, flags were flown at half-mast, and as was the custom in Victorian times, the windows in the city were draped with black curtains or were covered with black shutters. About 1,500 orphans, all those who were old enough to walk the distance, marched in rank behind the coach carrying George Mueller's coffin. The children were joined by hundreds of men and women who had grown up in the orphanage, including some who had been in the original orphanage on Wilson Street when it opened in 1836. Thousands of mourners stood quietly outside the church as the funeral service took place. There was no way for them all to fit inside. After a final hymn was sung, the procession made its way from Bethesda Chapel to the cemetery. Over 100 carriages joined in the procession, including one carrying the mayor of Bristol and his family. 7,000 people stood respectfully at the cemetery as George Mueller was buried under a yew tree between his two wives, Mary and Susanna. The funeral service was reported all over England, and news of it went out on the telegraph wires around the world. The Daily Telegraph wrote that George Mueller had robbed the cruel streets of thousands of victims, the jails of thousands of felons, and the poorhouses of thousands of helpless waifs. And how had he done this? The Liverpool Mercury wrote, How was this wonder accomplished? Mr. Mueller has told the world that it was the result of prayer. The rationalism of the day will sneer at this declaration, but the facts remain. The Liverpool Mercury was right. No matter what anyone thought of George Mueller's religious ideas, the facts were amazing. In the 63 years he had run the orphanage, he had taken full responsibility for the care of over 10,000 orphan children. George Mueller had truly learned the lesson of being a good steward of God's money. He went from being a boy who stole from his father and a young man who used whatever means he could to swindle money from his friends to a man God trusted with a fortune, a man who kept so little for himself that when he died, he had only 160 pounds in his estate, and most of that was the value of a few pieces of furniture. In his lifetime, nearly one and a half million pounds passed through George Mueller's hands. As well as supporting the orphanage, 115,000 pounds of this money was spent on running Sunday schools and regular schools around the world. 90,000 pounds was used for printing and distributing Bibles, and over 260,000 pounds went to support missionaries. One of the many missionary organizations George gave to was the China Inland Mission, founded by Hudson Taylor, who had become a good friend. During a particularly difficult period in China, George sent enough money to Hudson Taylor to support all the missionaries of the China Inland Mission. George Mueller was not a man driven by pride or greed. He was a humble man who allowed huge sums of money to pass through his hands. He recognized that it was God's money, not his, and it was to be used in ways that would demonstrate God's love for his people. 
Everything George did was toward furthering that end. As a result, thousands of people's lives were touched and changed. Today, the lives of those George touched, as well as the manner in which he lived his own life, are a demonstration to every Christian of the impact a life of simple faith can have. Oh, the example of a life lived as a witness to the faithfulness of God. George could never pray hard enough or ask God for big enough things. He expected great things from God because God is so great. Excerpts for today's episode were read from George Mueller, the guardian of Bristol's orphans. I wish you a very Merry Christmas in a couple of weeks. My Christmas prayer, if you have not yet come to a saving knowledge of the Christ child, is that this Christmas you will see the wonder of eternal God who came down in the form of a baby so that he could live a perfect life and die a sinless death in order to reconcile you to a holy God. He rose again, and wonder of all wonders, he is coming again. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. Thank you.